meaning you're still going to be allowed to eat bread in New York when you would not be allowed to eat bread here. Now, the interesting shaila is this. Let's assume you're telling a rabbi to sell your chametz here in Israel. Now, the problem is going to be this. The problem actually is, actually, it's not too much of a problem. The problem is basically your chametz here is going to be sold earlier. But you shouldn't tell the rabbi in Israel to sell your chametz in America because then you won't be able to eat chametz. In other words, the basic idea is you either have American rabbi for American chametz and Israeli rabbi for Israeli chametz, uh, or you basically have to just tell the rabbi that it's two different time zones so he could make the sale earlier or later, as it were. Okay, and the same thing with buying back the chametz. Uh, here you have a problem the other way around. The Israeli rabbi is going to buy back your chametz, okay, but it's still going to be Pesach for you. Is that right? In other words, so he's not allowed to do that because then you'll be owning chametz. You'll be in America owning chametz that's here. So you have to instruct him that uh, he should not buy back your chametz till seven hours later. So, so, so basically it's very, very important when you sell chametz that you tell the rabbi what time zone you're going to be in for Pesach and what time zone the chametz is in so he can make the appropriate uh, computations. <coughs> okay, so now I thought I would talk a little bit, uh, again, if there's any question about chametz or anything like that, be sure to feel free to, to ask. And we already discussed, I think, the issue of chametz after Pesach, that if chametz was owned by a Jew, by a Jew during Pesach, you are never allowed to get benefit from that chametz at all, even after Pesach, and that's why any Jewishly owned grocery or supermarket that did not sell its chametz during Pesach, you have to wait until its inventory has turned over. So anything you buy was not owned during Pesach. And we don't know exactly when that is, so to play it safe, we actually wait until Lag Ba'omer, a few weeks after Pesach. And different organizations, probably Chabad probably has its own list, but the OU and, and other, other organizations like that will have lists of stores for different cities uh, that you're not allowed to buy right after Pesach, or during Pesach. Well, during Pesach, of course, you can buy because whatever you're gonna buy during Pesach is not chametz. But after Pesach, where you could buy chametz, you cannot buy chametz from those types of, those types of stores, okay. <coughs> so I thought I would talk a little bit just about the Haggadah, about the Seder. Uh, I'm not sure how much of this was, was covered. I have a feeling maybe it was covered by other people, so uh, I'll, I'll try not to be too uh, repetitious. Uh, the basic Seder uh, is supposed to replicate what was the eating of the Korban Pesach at the time of the Beis HaMikdash. Essentially, we are reenacting eating the Korban Pesach Minus, of course, the Korban Pesach. But all of the ceremonies are connected to eating the Korban Pesach. But the particular mitzvah that we are fulfilling, which applies even when there's no Korban Pesach, is the mitzvah called Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. There is a mitzvah on the anniversary of the Exodus, the night of the Exodus, the 15th of Nisan, that we should recount the miracles and the wonders that God did for our forefathers 
and our foremothers when he took us out of Mitzrayim. And this is called Sipor Yitziat Mitzrayim. Uh, this is a mitzvah to Oraisa. And of course in Chutzlaretz, because of the two-day Yom Tov, they do it two nights, but really it's, it's one night, the first night of Pesach. And how is this derived? What Pasuk tells me this mitzvah? It's a mitzvah, V'higadato levincha, you shall tell your child, Vayomahu leymar, on that day, the day of the Exodus, Vavorzeh, because of all of these miracles that God did for me, we recount this story. And that's why the book of recounting the story is called Haggadah. Why is it called Haggadah? Because it is based on the Pasuk, V'higadata, Levincha, you shall tell your child. And Chazal say, even if you don't have a child, even if you're by yourself, you still have to uh, tell, the, uh, tell the story. In fact, there's a beautiful story. You could look it up. Maybe you imagine about uh, the year after the, the Rebbe lost uh, the Rebbetzin. So someone was wondering, well, how would the Rebbe spend this? How, how would he spend the Seder? I don't know if you heard this. So, uh, so someone actually invited The family actually invited him, which would have been a big, uh, big coup, so to speak. But the Rebbe had the Seder in his office. And, uh, you, know, too long, you know, he had a beautiful Seder by himself. Uh, and uh, the Hasidim like to say that the Rebbe saw that in a few years there would be corona. I mean, 20 years later, there would be corona and people would have to spend Seder by themselves sometimes. So he wanted to give people chizuk that it can be done, that you know, you're able to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're with Hashem. And you know, you're with Hashem. You're never alone. And uh, so the MS is, you're mechoyev to say the Haggadah even if you're by yourself. Hopefully, nobody's going to be by themselves, but sometimes a person is by themselves. But as the Rebbe said, you're never by yourself, really. You're always with HaKadosh Baruch especially Pesach night. And therefore, you're really not lonely, even when you're alone. So uh, that's the mitzvah of Sipra. Now remember the following. There is actually a mitzvah every single day. Not just once a day, but twice a day to remember that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. And that actually goes by a different name. That mitzvah is called Zachiras Yitzias Mitzrayim. <coughs> and it's not just mentally remembering, it's, it, you have to say a verse like, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, I am Hashem who took you out of Mitzrayim. And this is a mitzvah in the day and at night. And that is derived from a different Pasuk. So these are two different mitzvahs that are derived from two different verses. The mitzvah of Zechira, remembrance, every single day, is a verse, Laman Tiskor Es Yom Seischem Eretz Mitzrayim, you shall remember the day that you left Mitzrayim, kol yamei chayecha, all the days of your life. Now God actually refers to that also. But that's the daily mitzvah of Zechira. That's from Laman Tiskar es yom seischam yevitz Mitzrayim, kol yamei chayecha. The annual mitzvah of Sipor is from the verse, v'higadeta lavincha v'yomahu leymar, so the interesting question is this. Every single day and night, there already is a mitzvah called Sechira. So even if the Torah wouldn't have given me a special mitzvah of Sipor, I would have to mention the Exodus anyway. 
So what is the Torah adding by giving me a mitzvah of Sipor that's not already covered by the mitzvah of Sechira? Now you may give me an answer. Well, of course Sipor is different. You've got to say the Haggadah. I mean, that's obvious, much more than you do during the week. But that's not a complete answer. And the reason is the Torah does not mandate. The Torah says you've got to recount the Exodus. But the Torah does not mandate a book called the Haggadah. The Haggadah is a compilation of Psukim, of Midrashim. But it's a much later date. The Haggadah dates from the second base of Mikdash. Meaning, when the Torah says you have to recount the Exodus, the Torah left it up to you. No, you, you tell the story. Later, it got concretized in a Haggadah. So the question is, insofar as the Torah is concerned, what is Sipor making me do more than Zechira? Since the Haggadah is not mandatory as far as the Torah is concerned. So the explanation that's given is that even though the Torah does not mandate a specific Haggadah, that came later, there are four elements that you have to have in Sipur that you don't have to have in Zechira. And the Haggadah is predicated on these four elements. The Haggadah is based on four ideas that are unique to the annual mitzvah that do not apply to the daily mitzvah. Element number one, she'ela utshuva, meaning to say, during the year, I just have to say, God took me out of Mitzrayim. I don't have to have question and answer. Pesach night, the mitzvah of Sipor requires that it be done in a question and answer format. Now, that's not only if someone is asking you questions, even if you're by yourself. You have to ask questions. You know, I remember, we'll talk about why that's important, but I want to just give the list. I remember, I, I was very young, I must have been maybe six, seven or eight, I don't remember, but uh, we were invited to someone's house for a Seder, and the kids uh, who were a little older than me they kept on bombarding their father with a lot of questions about the Seder, about Pesach. And dad got, their dad got impatient. So their dad said, you know, stop asking questions, we've got to do the Seder. And I remember as a little boy, I found that very, very funny because the whole point of the Seder, this is the gold standard, the greatest thing in the world is questions. You know, the Manishtana is not meant, the Manishtana is like cliff notes. The Manishtana is for cheaters. If you can't think of questions, so we give you four questions to ask. The ideal is you have questions, right? So I'll come back why that's important. So element number one is it got to be question and answer. <coughs> element number two is what the Mishnah calls Maschil bignus umesayim bishvach. Maschil bignus means it's not enough to talk about the good part of it. 
God took me out of Egypt. You gotta start with the bad part of it. You gotta start with the slavery. You gotta start with the idolatry. You cannot just tell the good part of the story. You gotta start with the suffering part of the story. And that's unique. During the year, I don't have to do that. During the year, I just say, Hashem took me out of Israel. Leil Pesach, I gotta start with the bad part. Again, I'll come back and go over, the, over that line. Again, this is trying to differentiate between the annual mitzvah of Sibor and the daily mitzvah, twice daily mitzvah of Zechira. Maschil bignus umisayem bishvach. You begin with degradation and you culminate in uh, praise to Hashem for the geula. The third element is actually a passage that appears towards the end of the Magid, the narrative part of the Haggadah, and that is Rabban Gamliel's statement. Rabban Gamliel said, anyone who does not explain three commandments does not fulfill his mitzvah, and the three commandments are the Korban Pesach, the eating of the matzah and the moror. Now, let's think about this. He who does not explain, he or she, because men and women are the same here, exactly. If a person does not explain the significance of these three mitzvahs, they have not fulfilled their obligation. Which obligation have they not fulfilled? So this is very important. You do fulfill the mitzvah of matzah even if you don't explain it because the mitzvah is to eat it. You do fulfill Pesach without explaining it because again, the mitzvah is to eat it. And you, when you had Pesach, and the mitzvah of Mara you fulfill by eating it. So when it says you're not Yotzei the mitzvah without explaining, it doesn't mean you're not Yotzei Pesach Matzu Maror. You actually are Yotzei Pesach Matzu Maror, but it means you're not Yotzei Sipor Yitziat Mitzrayim. That Sipor Yitziat Mitzrayim requires that you explain the significance of these three foods. That, of course, is only unique. Leil Pesach for Sipor. It does not apply to Sipor. Now, this, by the way, I think may be especially important for women. Because here's the thing. This part of the Haggadah is right before the second cup. After the second cup, we eat. We wash. We're going to eat. So a lot of times, it shouldn't only be the women that are involved, but usually it's the women that are involved in the food serving, although I'm not saying it has to be that way. But whoever is in charge of serving the food will often get up at that point and go into the kitchen. So the part of the Haggadah that they might be missing is actually the most important part of the Haggadah. And that's Rabban Gamliel who says, if you didn't explain these three things, you're not Yotze the whole mitzvah. If you miss that part of the Haggadah, you, you have nothing, you've lost it all. <coughs> So, if you're going to get up into the kitchen, be sure to say it before you get up. You can go ahead if you have to. 
Or say it before you go, before you drink the second cup. You come back and say it before you drink the second cup. So even if you're not saying it with the family or with the community, you say it yourself. You have to be sure to say it. And again, again, like everything in the Haggadah, you can say it in English, whatever language you understand. The most important thing is that you understand what you're saying. Okay, so I've mentioned three things so far. Sheila uh, Utshuva, question and answer. You begin with the bad and you end with the good. And the third is actually three step, three things. The, the need to explain Pesach, Matzah, Mora. Now, the fourth element, again, this is the fourth element that distinguishes Sipor from Zechira, is a passage in the Haggadah as well that says, Chayav Adam Liros es Atzmo Ki'ilu Hu Yatsami Mitzrayim. Each person must regard themselves as if they themselves were liberated from Mitzrayim. Now, this is very, very interesting. The whole year, I just remember what Hashem did in the past. Pesach night, and this is a very difficult thing, but we'll try to explain this. Pesach night, I have to personally experience being liberated from Mitzrayim. We'll talk about how that's even possible. It's not just remembering, it's experiencing. Many have said that's the hardest mitzvah of Pesach, to actually experience being liberated. Okay, so the Kitsur, these are four elements that distinguish the unique mitzvah of Sipor from the general mitzvah of Sechira the whole year. Shailu Tshuva, Maschil Vignusu Messiah Bishvach, Pesach Matsu Marar, and number four, Chayavodam Liros Esatzmo, Kiilu Hu Yatsa Mimitzrayim. So, how would we understand this? Like, what are, what are the reasons for all of these? Why are these so important? Now, the Haggadah is based on these principles. The composition that we call the Haggadah is essentially an elaboration of these four ideas. <coughs> so let's start with number four, because number four is going to be the key to everything. Every person must regard themselves as if they themselves were taken out of Mitzrayim. Question, what does that mean? I was not in Mitzrayim. I was never in Egypt. I assume most of you were not in Egypt. You were certainly not a slave in Egypt. So how can we say it? It's one thing to say, be grateful for what Hashem did to your forefathers. Okay, I understand that. But how can I say I have to regard myself as if I was taken out of Mitzrayim. So I'm going to give you three, three ex quickie explanations, one a little longer. Explanation one is Alpi Kabbalah. According to the Mekubalim, according to Darizal, every single soul of every Jew that, will ever, that has ever been born and will ever been born, be born was in fact enslaved in the 600,000 Jews that were in Mitzrayim. So yeah, 
I, as a physical goof, was never in Mitzrayim, but in fact, my neshama was mishubat. My neshama was subjugated. Is there a reason? There's there a reason, yeah. So in reality, I was in Mitzrayim. Pasha. That's explanation number one, I'll pee Kabbalah. Explanation number two seems to be the Rambam. And the Rambam says, it doesn't mean you actually were in Mitzrayim. But it's a way of using the power of imagination in order to be grateful to Hashem. Right? Those of you, if I could use a secular analogy, uh, you might be familiar with a term called method acting. Right? So method acting is an idea that for an actor to get into a role, an actor has to literally imagine himself or herself in that situation. And method actors can be crazy. They have to sometimes, they may lock themselves up in a room for like two weeks to get into you know, whatever role they're playing. Sometimes they go crazy. I mean, I, there were certain actors who committed suicide because they got so much into a role of an evil thing, whatever, something like that. So the Rambam says like this, if I want to be grateful to Hashem for Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, I have to imagine what it was like to be a slave. I have to imagine what it's like to be beaten, to be humiliated, to be tortured to work day and night, to have no respect, no regard, to be regarded as nothing. In other words, not that you were, but you got to put yourself in the moment in order to be grateful to Hashem. It's the use of the power of imagination to generate gratitude and appreciation to Hashem. Imagine Right? Uh, I don't know if any of you ever visited it. I've never uh, been there, but they tell me it's a very interesting experience. In Cholon, they have Museum of the Blind or something, where, and also Deaf, where you go through, I don't know what they do, but you kind of, they put something over your eyes, like a mask, and you have to behave as if you're blind for a few hours, or deaf for a we few hours. Blind, um, Say again? I went to the blind to the restaurant with my parents one time ago. Yeah. To like pull each other's arm, like on the shoulder, so you can like get around. Right, 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 right. So what's that doing is that that allows you to feel what it's like. So you appreciate the, the difficulties that people have, and you can respect them more, and the like for all of the great difficulties. So the Rambam is saying, Chayavadam Lirais is imagine what it's like to be a slave. So then you're grateful to Hashem. Now, the, so I mentioned two explanations. There is Al Hesber that indeed my neshama was enslaved. The Rambam, I imagine slavery, so I'm grateful to Hashem. And then we have from the Alter Reb in the Tanya, although he's only Maramis, he's very, very brief, but it's a thought that's a very powerful thought. <coughs> the Alter Rebbe says that the word Mitzrayim has a double meaning. Mitzrayim can mean Egypt. But Mitzrayim also means boundaries, constrictions, 
limitations, blockages. David HaMelech says in Halel, <coughs> Min HaMetzar, Metzar Mitzrayim, Min HaMetzar Karasikah. I call out to God from the narrow, confining depths as if I'm being choked. Anani b'merchav, answer me with expansiveness and openness. So seen in this way, Mitzrayim has a double meaning. Egypt, but also boundary, constriction, blockage, limitation. Seen in this way, every single person has their own Mitzrayim. Every person has things that block them in their connection to Hashem. You can have a Mitzrayim of Gaiva, arrogance, a Mitzrayim of egotism, a Mitzrayim of laziness, a Mitzrayim of depression, of self-loathing. The Mitzrayim of anger and resentment. These are all my inner Mitzrayims. And as the saying goes, it's easier to take the Jew out of Mitzrayim than it is to take Mitzrayim out of the Jew. So says the Alter Rebbe, when Hashem took the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim, he put into the Bria a koach where if I hold on to the power of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, I can be liberated from the Mitzrayims that enslave me. So now when it says each person must regard himself as if he was taken out of Mitzrayim, it doesn't have to mean literally I must regard myself as if I was taken out of Egypt. But it means I identify my Mitzrayim. And through the Kayach of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim I can be liberated from my inner Mitzrayim. Okay, very powerful idea. Because what that's telling you is <coughs> that as you go through the Haggadah you're going, through, you're going through two different narratives at the same time. There is the narrative of Am Yisrael, how the Jewish people were formed through the miracles of the exodus of Egypt. And that's the common historical story of Am Yisrael that we lovingly tell to our children, to our family, and even Jews who are very far from uh, Judaism generally. But their neshamas want to come together to tell this story. And that's the story of this nation, the story of our relationship with Hashem. But that's a common story, meaning that's a story that all of us share together. That's our story. But in addition to our story, there's a private, idiosyncratic story that is unique to every person who may want to share it or may not want to share it. That's a separate thing. That is the journey out of our own inner Mitzrayim in which everybody's Mitzrayim is private. It's not Shavel Chal Nefesh. It is not the common story of everybody. 
but it's the unique journey that we take in our lives. Okay, so there is the public Mitzrayim, and there is the private Mitzrayim. And the Chayavadam Liros Asatzmok Evil Yasmin Mitzrayim pertains, so to speak, to the private Mitzrayim that a person has. <coughs> Seen in this way, therefore, you can look at the other elements of the Seder as ways that we can be liberated from our private Mitzrayim. So let's go over the other three elements and see how they connect to this fourth element. We talk about question and answer, right? Uh, that Lael Seder, it's not enough just to give answers, you gotta have questions and then answers. So what is the significance of a question? The significance of a question is, I, somebody once asked me, in fact, a boy once asked me, how come every time somebody says a Devar Torah, it always starts with a question? Why can't you just, if you, if you want to say something, just say it. I mean, why do you have to say, there's a question here, and just, just say your point. <laughs> That's interesting, interesting question. Why, do, why is everything always a question? But the answer is, a question contains a certain tension in the question, meaning something is not right. It might be a technical thing, but there's a contradiction. Something doesn't fit. In other words, you're going beyond your comfort zone. You're going beyond something. You're challenging yourself. And if a person has no questions, that means they're not interested in going beyond where they are. And one of the most important lessons in spiritual life is you have to be willing to challenge, go beyond your comfort zone, go to the next step. In fact, it's been well said, there is no such thing as a bad question or a foolish question, as long as it has a question mark at the end of it. Now, there's a big difference. Sometimes people say they ask questions, really there might be a tax or whatever it might be. In fact, this is the difference between, if you look at the four sons, Right, these are the four personality types. So we say the wise son asks a very erudite question, the laws and the statutes and all the differences. And the Russia <coughs> says, why are you doing this stuff? And he says, why are you doing it? Not him. But if you look in the Chumash, you'll see that the Chacham's question is prefaced with the phrase, when your son asks you. The Russia's question is prefaced when your son tells you. There's a very, very big difference between asking and telling. Although I have to say, the, the Rebbe's famous comment is, is very, very beautiful here as well, where he pointed out, all right, we have these four sons, and the Russia's a bad guy, and we still want to deal with him, but he's much better than the fifth son who doesn't even show up. Right? The Russia is there, even though he's hostile, and we have to be very grateful. But our real problem is the son that didn't even bother to show up, and that's the one we really have to uh, try to get. Okay. Um, so that's Shayla Chu. And that's why, by the way, a person who's very learned in Torah is called a Talmid Chacham. Now, Talmid Chacham technically means a wise student. Why would you call a great rabbi a student? student seems to be he didn't finish his education. But the answer is you call him a great student because the true sign of wisdom 
is you never stop learning. Wisdom means you continue to be a student. You continue to learn. They say again, they say about the Rebbe, two things. They say, number one, that the Rebbe was such a great Rebbe because he, was, he remained such a great chassid, meaning he was a chassid to his father-in-law. And, when, when the, I mean, the Rebbe was busy a lot, but, but every second that he was not busy, he was learning Torah. Constantly learning Torah the whole day. If you, if you were to put a camera in his office, you know, he would be learning Torah, even though he knew everything already. But you keep on learning and learning and learning and learning and learning. And that's the idea of asking questions. Don't be afraid to grow. Don't be afraid to challenge yourself. Don't be afraid to keep learning. Don't think that you know, you know everything already. And even if the question looks foolish, if it's an honest desire to know, it's a good thing. Hashem wants us to try to understand whatever we're able to understand. Right, so that's the idea of question and answer. Now, begin with the bad, and then talk about the good. Now you know, there's a very, very famous story involving the Rebbe Rav Zusha. You've heard of Rav Zusha. Rav Zusha was actually a uh, very good friend of the Alter Rebbe. They were both Talmidim of the Mezirichu Magid. In fact, uh, one of the Haskamas to the Tanya is from uh, Rav Zusha of Anipoli. So Rav Zusha is kind of folk here. There's a lot of like folk stories about Rav Zusha. Uh, so one of the famous stories is that the Mishnah says you have to thank Hashem or, or at least be, be makabel, be simcha, except with simcha, even bad things, just like you do for good things. Meaning, no matter what Hashem does, you, have, you accept it as something good. So there was a chassid who didn't understand how that's possible. How can I have the same simcha for bad things as good things? So he went to the Magid of Mezirich, the Mezirichur Magid, and the Mezirichur Magid said, I'm not going to answer me, answer you, you have to go to my Talmud Rav Zusha. Ask Rav Zusha the question, and you'll get your answer. So he looks around for Rav Zusha. Rav Zusha lives in poverty. Uh, there's holes in the roof. Rain and snow is coming in. The children aren't dressed properly. There's no bread in the house. Everything is bad. Poor, poverty, living in rags. And he says, Rav Zusha, the Rebbe says, I have to ask you a question. It says in the Mishnah, you got to thank Hashem for the bad just like you thank Hashem for the good. The Rebbe said, you can explain it to me. And Rav Zusha looked very confused. Rav Zusha said, I really don't know why the Rebbe sent you to me. Nothing bad has ever happened to me. <laughs> and that, of course, was what the Magid meant to be the answer. There's a certain Madrega, and again, most of us are not on this Madrega, so I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, we're expected to be on this Madrega. But there's a certain level of understanding of God in which you see that even in the difficulties of life, there is blessing, there is light, there is holiness, there is goodness. The Zohar has an explanation, as, not an explanation, as a phrase, 
that's called Butsina de Cardenusa, which actually means the black light. That in the blackness, there's a light. Now, we don't know what that means. How can there be a black light? But in reality, the same way there are certain frequencies of light that you can only see with certain goggles, like ultra-red, different types of frequencies. There is a light in the blackness that you need certain goggles, certain goggles of emuna, bitochem. They're not physical goggles, but a certain way of looking at life in which even the challenges of life are seen as brachos. So when the Haggadah says you've got to begin with the bad and culminate in the good, the understanding is because even the negative are Hashem's brachos. Even the adversities of life have hidden potentials. Some of you might, I don't know if the library has it, you may have seen a book, uh, it's been out for a while, All for the Boss. Uh, All for the Boss is a biography of, of a man written by his daughter. Uh, this is Rav Yaakov Yosef Herman, who was a big, big, big tzaddik who died uh, maybe 50 years ago. His uh, daughter, who wrote the book, is no longer alive, Rucham Hashem. And she tells a story about her father. Her father was an extraordinary man, but she tells a particular story about her father. That's a very moving story in which he came over with his parents to the United States like uh, after World War I. And he was 10 years old or 11 years old. His parents could not make it in the country. They went back to Europe and they left him here alone. You know, 11 or 12 year old kid. And they set him up. In those days, uh, children could work. In those days, there were no child labor laws. So kids went to work. So they set him up with somebody where he had a room that he paid like $5 a week for a room. As soon as the parents left, the landlord raised it to $10 a week. This little kid could not afford $10 a week. So he was evicted Friday, Friday afternoon and he spent the whole Shabbos in Central Park on a bench all he had were some little rolls, etc. And you can imagine, maybe you can't imagine, how frightening this was. I mean, he had no parents, he had no family. He's in the street. And what's going to be after Shabbos? In those days, in those years, there was no protection for Shomer Shabbos. You were supposed to work on Saturday. If you didn't come to work on Saturday, you'd have to find a new job on Monday. Sunday was a day off. <coughs> So his situation was hopeless and frightening and lonely. And how would he live? A little kid. <coughs> so he told his daughter later, apparently, that he said to Hashem, he spoke to Hashem that night. And he said, I know, Hashem, that you will give me a parnasa." And I know, Hashem, that you will give me a roof over my head. And I know, Hashem, that someday I'm going to get married and have some hatzlacha. I have absolute bitachem. My one prayer to you is that I never forget what it's like to be lonely and cold and scared. So that when I see other people in the world who are like that, 
I will show them rachamim and compassion. Because otherwise a person forgets and a person now is you know, comfortable and everything else. So if you know, this, if you know the book, basically, uh, Baruch Hashem, uh, he eventually was Matzliach. He actually became a wealthy person, although he lost it in the Depression. Uh, and he and his Rebetzin, they established a home in which they would have hundreds of people for Shabbos. And uh, he had his share of great Rosh Hashivas and Rebbe's, but he also had a lot of people that we would not like in our houses. Homeless people, mentally ill people, dirty, smelly people, people who didn't just stay for a Shabbos, but stayed for a few months or a year. And when people would ask him, how can you have such mishuganess in your house? He would say, I remember what it's like. I know what they suffered. And when you know and you feel what other people have felt, you don't look down upon them. You have empathy for them. You have empathy. So in a sense, in Mitzrayim too, the so-called bad part, the bad part, the slavery, was a good part. Now the Torah says, in many places, you shall love the gear, love the stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Mitzrayim. See what that means. A gear means a convert, that's true. But it comes from the word stranger, because a gear, maybe less so today, but in those days, a ger didn't have land, a ger didn't have yichus, a ger didn't have connections. A ger was the low person on the totem pole. And when you're sitting high and mighty in your land, in your field, in your government, in your state, then these people, these nobodies come into your life. You, you ignore them. So what is Hashem saying? Remember that you were once in that position. Remember what it's like. Don't forget your pain when you celebrate your successes. And let that be the source of your empathy and your compassion for those who are suffering. And that's the yisod of Maschil Bignus. Remember the bad. Because from the bad, you will achieve goodness that you otherwise would not have achieved. See? <coughs> and this is true in many, many areas because in every life there are going to be disappointments. Now, sometimes they could be major, major traumas and sometimes they could be you know, relatively minor things. You didn't get into the medical school you wanted to get into. You know, whatever it is. But how does a person respond? You can get bitter, you can get angry. Or you can ask yourself, what does Hashem want me to learn from these experiences? And then you take your negatives and they become part of your positives. Okay, so once again, this is how Maschil Bignus ties into the spiritual Yitzia from your own Mitzrayim. Okay, we then come to Rabban Gamliel who has his four, I'm sorry, three things. So he's really three things. Pesach, Matzah, Moror. 
So I'm going to start in reverse order. I'll explain why at the end. Why do we eat maror? We eat maror to remind ourselves of the bitterness of slavery. Right? That the night, the night that we celebrate our freedom is the night that we remember <coughs> the bitterness of slavery. What's the lesson there? <coughs> that the first step to achieving spiritual liberation is to admit you're a slave. And if I don't admit my own mitzrayims to myself, not, not to other people, <coughs> if I don't admit I have an egotism problem or an anger problem or a selfishness problem, if I don't admit my slavery, then there's no way I can take steps to correct it because I deny that there's even an issue I have to fix. So I need the moror, which is the honesty to myself, to be makir that I have a mitzrayim. You know, I'll tell you a story. You know, I, I used to uh, live in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., and I would teach uh, in Baltimore. So if you know the geography, you're going north. You're going, you're going on a major highway that's 95 north. Um, so, but there is a turnoff if you don't watch 95 south, meaning you're supposed to go north, but if you're not watching, you wind up. So one day when I was not that, that familiar with the driving, I'm driving to Baltimore, so I'm supposed to be going north. And all of a sudden, I see the Washington Monument the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, which if you know, you see that when you go to Virginia, which is 95 South, you're not supposed to see it when you go to Baltimore, that's 95 North. So I had this sickening feeling in my stomach, ay, 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 I'm in Virginia, which I had no, I had no way, I had no idea how to get out of that. Uh, so I didn't want to admit, I knew I was in Virginia, but I didn't want to admit I was in Virginia. I can't even explain this. Uh, so I started telling myself, you know, maybe you, you do see this to Baltimore. Maybe you never noticed it before. You know, you're still going to Baltimore, but you didn't notice it. Now, I knew that wasn't right, but I said, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you're in the right road. And I didn't want to admit. But what's going on? It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping on going in the wrong way, right? So the first step towards getting on the right road is you've got to admit you're on the wrong road. Until you admit, you can't take any action at all. You know, uh, investments is the same thing. This happens in business all the time. A person puts money into a business or an investment, and it fails, it fails. He loses the money, he loses $1,000. So instead of admitting, okay, I've lost 1000 bucks, he puts in another 1000 and another 1000 another 1000 thinking it's going to get better. When all you're doing is throwing bad money after bad money. Right, what did Einstein say? Insanity is the thinking 
that you'll do the same thing over and over again and get a different result. <laughs> Doing the same thing, you know, it's not going to work. So, moror is admit. Be honest to yourself. Again, we're not talking, you don't have to confess to other people. But to yourself. I have something I need to make a cheshman on nefesh. i got to work on something. I have a mitzrayim. Taste your slavery. But we then come to matzah. Now matzah has many, matzah chametz has many, many symbols. You know, one of the most famous, of course, uh, throughout Hasidus, but also even in Chazal, is that chametz is puffed up full of air. It represents gaiva, arrogance. Matzah is flat. It represents humility and trust in Hashem. That is one very basic idea. But Maharal gives another idea that's interesting. Maharal says chametz represents inertia. Why does chametz represent inertia? Because when water hits flour, if you do nothing, 18 minutes will become chametz. You don't need yeast. You do not have to add yeast. You do not have to have a starter. Chametz will happen automatically. Water and flour will be chametz if you do nothing. In order to stop chametz, you have to put it in an oven. The heat destroys the fermentation. So seen in this way, chametz represents the inertia of doing nothing. Matzah represents taking lamaisa, taking practical action. <clears throat> so the relationship of matzah and moror is the following. Moror is identifying my mitzrayim. But just because a person identified their mitzrayim doesn't mean they're doing anything about it. You know, a person can go to psychoanalysis for 50 years and they know every single problem they've ever been through. But they don't do anything about it. So matzah says it's not enough to be aware. You've got to translate your awareness into concretization of action. This is a very, very big episode. You know, every person has moments of inspiration. A person's inspired, I feel close to Hashem. It might be after a Pesach Seder, it might be after Yom Kippur, it might be during Sukkot, it might be at a Chasna, or the birth of one's child, or whatever it is, or it might be just walking in Yerushalayim. But if you don't concretize your feelings in Misa, even a small little action, that's nailing it down the feelings just dissipate. So, if moror is awareness, matzah is doing something about it. Olamaisa. Chabad says, there has to be, therefore, there has to be a and not just the inspiration. 
Then we come to Pesach. Right, this is Rabbi Gamil. Pesach. I'm going Moror, Matzah, Pesach. I'm going. I'll, I'll explain why I, I, I didn't reverse in a, in a second. A few minutes. Pesach, of course, has many, many halachas. But one very interesting halacha is you can't bring the Korban Pesach as an individual. Meaning, even if you have a very big appetite, and even if you're bringing a very small lamb, and you could finish the whole thing, you can't bring it alone. You have to either bring it with your family, or if you're not with a family, you join a family. Or if you have a bunch of people who don't have family, you, you make a chabura, you make a group. You cannot bring the Korban Pesach by yourself. It's machlokis in the Gemara, but this is what the Rambam asks. The lesson here is also very, very important. When we have our journey to leave our Mitzrayim, we need to do it with people who share our values, share our journey. Everybody's journey is unique, but you need friends who will give each other strength. Now that could be husband and wife who are called beloved friends, but it refers to friends in a more general sense as well. Because what does Shlomo HaMelech say in Kohelas? Shlomo HaMelech says in Kohelas, Two are better than one because if one person falls down and there are two, one person could raise the other person up. But if one person falls by himself, who is going to pick him up? Now that's not only a reference to ice, although it's true for ice too. It's a reference to life. Each of us has moments of weakness. Each of us has times when we're not strong. When we falter. But when you have a friend that shares your value, that friend will give you strength when you're weak, just as you will give them strength when they're weak. That's the notion. We need we need friends. And the Rambam writes, there are three reasons, right? Perkei Avos says, uh, you should have yourself a friend. Why? Why is it important to have friends? So there are three reasons why you need friends. Reason number one is practical. If I don't have a friend and I lost my keys, like who do I call to sleep? You know, there's an emergency, like a life insurance policy, meaning... I need friends because otherwise I have nobody to call. Okay. That's kind of one reason for friendship. We'll call that utilitarian or pragmatic. A second reason for friendship is social. People get lonely and they want to schmooze. That's a legitimate need as well. Not Lush and Hara, hopefully, but you know, you want to talk, you want to talk to people sometimes. But there's a third reason that the Rambam says is the most important. And that is a spiritual friend. A friend who challenges you to be a better person 
than you otherwise would be. You see, and that friendship may sometimes be a difficult friendship, you see, because if you're friends with somebody only on a very casual basis, you know, we have a good time together, so all right. If they do things that aren't so good, I'm not, I may not bring it up, etc. Because I'm not there to change them, I'm not there to help them. I mean, they're just to kind of, you know, waste time with, so to speak. But when you have friends where you really, really love each other in the sense that you want each other to be the best they can be, then if you see things that they're not doing so well, you know, you're going to talk to them about it, and you're going to be open, of course, to have them talk to you about things. Those friendships might be more difficult. They're more meaningful. They're more deep. But they can be difficult. So Carbon Pesach is the imperative of friendship. So now, again, we started off with, again, just to remind people about how we got here, uh, we started off with the idea that there is a daily mitzvah called Zechira, above the Exodus, and then there is an annual mitzvah called Sipor, and there are four structural differences between the annual mitzvah of Sipor and the daily mitzvah of Zechira. One is question and answer. The other is begin with the bat. The third is Pesach Matzah And the fourth is each person must regard themselves as if they were taken out of Mitzrayim. Right? Those are the four structural differences between Sipor and Zechira. We then wanted to explain the spiritual significance of those four differences, and we started with number four, primarily based on the Alter Rebbe's idea that each person must regard themselves as if they were taken out of Mitzrayim. does not mean I was in Egypt, but I identify my own Mitzrayim and by latching on to Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, I can be liberated from my own inner Mitzrayim. And therefore, the other elements are all ways that we become liberated from our Mitzrayim. Shelu tshuva, be a seeker of wisdom. Maschel begnus, see even in the negative, the hidden brachos of God. Pesach matzul marar, marar, be honest in recognizing your slavery. Matzah, take action. Pesach, find who will share your values and share your journey. And in that way, I can leave my own Mitzrayim and become liberated from my Mitzrayim. So now, one final question on this, and that is, if Marar represents awareness of my slavery, and Matzah represents action, taking action, (coughs) then logically... I should eat moror before I eat matzah. Because I first have to know my problem and then I can take action to solve my problem. Until I know my problem, until I have my moror, how can I do my matzah? And yet, in the Seder, we first eat matzah, then we eat moror. We ought to eat moror and then eat matzah. First of all, that's logical anyway, because slavery came before freedom. And so even chronologically, eat the mara, then eat the matzah. Why do you first eat the matzah, then eat the mara? So the answer is this. Although it's true 
I cannot address a problem, matzah, which is action, until I'm aware of what the problem is. That's true. But if I start with my negatives, I start with my deficits, I start thinking about my failures and my mistakes, what is likely to happen is a person gets overcome with depression, a person loses hope, a person has what's called yish, and then they become paralyzed with sadness and depression. So before you contemplate your shortcomings, you first have to contemplate your koach to make positive changes. So I have to learn the lesson of matzah. And only then I can confront my chisarim. And then I eat the matzah and the mora together, problem and solution. That's koach. Okay? In other words, you've got to build yourself up first. Meaning before you contemplate your chesronos, you first have to understand your greatness, your godly soul. Because that will give you the koach to be miskaber. If a person is not aware of the greatness of the nefesh um, then they will not know they have the koach to fight these particular battles. So you've got to start off with your godlus and then you can look at your shiftless. Then you can look at the loneliness or whatever needs to be, needs to be corrected. Okay, so that's kind of a, an overview, a structural overview of, 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 the Seder, of the Seder itself. Now, let me point out again, an uh, interesting matter, that let me go over very, very quickly, really, really quickly, uh, the 15 steps of the Seder. The, the Seder has 15 steps. And uh, the 15 steps are very intentional because uh, there are 15 steps to the Beis HaMikdash. Uh, and in Tehillim, there are 15 psalms that are called Shir Hamalos. Actually, one of them is Shir Lamalos. That's another question. But, but uh, a song of ascents, because these were recited as people would ascend uh, the stairs of the Beis HaMikdash. And so, too, the 15 uh, steps of the Seder Armachovan Keneged, reaching, so to speak, the base Hamikdash in terms of closeness to Hashem. And there are convenient ways of remembering. If a person uh, didn't have a Haggadah, but at least the, uh, they, they knew these signs, at least they would know what they're supposed to be saying at any given time. So the first is Kadesh. Right? The first thing we do is make Kiddush. And that includes three brachos, a Berei Priyagafen, Mekadesh Yisrael Vazmanim, which is the Kiddush Bracha, and Shechiyanu. So that's Kadesh. The next is Orchatz. We wash our hands without a Bracha. We don't make Alnatilat Yadayim. And that's really connected to Karpas, which is dipping a vegetable in salt water. So let me explain this. Orchatz cannot really be understood without Karpas. That is, in the time of the Beis Hamikdash, you are obligated to wash your hands not only for bread, but any time you ate a vegetable dipped in liquid. Any time. And in the time of the Beis Hamikdash, you would actually make an al tilat yadayim for that. Since the Seder meal is patterned after the eating of the Korban Pesach was Man HaMikdash, 
all of the rituals we did when there was a Beis HaMikdash, we do at the Seder table. So that's why we wash our hands before we eat the vegetable dipped in liquid. But we don't make a bracha because today it's not mandatory. In other words, uh, only Bizman HaMikdash you, you made a bracha on it. Okay. So the Orchatz is a remnant. It's a zecher to the Mikdash as a preface to dipping the vegetable in salt water. Now, karpas is then dipping a vegetable in salt water. So why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you dip a vegetable in salt water? So here, it's so interesting that the original reason is totally different than the later reason. The original reason was this was a sign of luxury. You were having an extra course, like an hors d'oeuvre, that you were celebrating freedom by dipping in some type of sauce. You took a vegetable, dipped it in sauce. It was actually like a fancy thing. So Karpas originally was not about slavery, it was not about salt tears, it was not about crying. Lehepech. It was a sign of luxury because we're B'nai Chorin. Later, it kind of got redefined almost to be connected to the tears that the Jewish people shed because of the slavery of Egypt. And even the word karpas could be divided up into samach perech, 600,000, backbreaking labor. So it's interesting that originally it was a sign of luxury. The later Mephorshim turned it into kind of a bit of a sadness. Okay. So the orchats and the karpas are connected. Okay. Now, yachats. Uh, what is the Chabad Minig? You have two matzahs or three matzahs? What's the... Three You have three? Three, have three, three or two? You have three. three. Okay. Three yeah, yeah, okay. So as you know, so three matzahs is the normal custom. And why you have three matzahs, different reasons. Some say Kohen, Levi, Yisrael, all of the Jewish people. Uh, but the halacha is that before we begin the Magid, we have to break one of the matzos. And the reason is... Because since the Torah describes the matzah of the Seder as lechem oni, now listen to this, this is a double meaning. Lechem oni means the bread of poverty, but it also means the bread of recitation, la'anot. So Chazal say the recitation must be over the bread of poverty. And it's characteristic of a poor person that he saves broken pieces of bread. He doesn't throw them away. So before you recite the Magid, you gotta break a matzah so that the Haggadah will be recited over the bread of affliction, the bread of poverty. Then as you know, uh, the larger half, usually it's not, it's not broken evenly, is going to be hidden for the afikomen we eat at the end of the meal. Uh, but the main reason why I do it now is the magid should be said over a broken bread. Right? So that's called yakats. We break the middle matzah. Why the middle matzah? The reason I gave you could apply to any of the matzahs. Uh, could very well be true, but there might be a remez here that it was in the merit of the levium, the middle matzah, that we merited redemption because the Levium were the only tribe of Israel that did not worship Avodah Zarah and that continued to practice bris milah. And of course, Moshe and Aram 
Well, Aaron became a Kohen later, but at that point in Mitzrayim, Moshe and Aaron were Levian. Moshe Rabbeinu was a late. Okay, so we did what? Kadesh, Orchas, Harpas, Yachas. Now we have a really long part of the Haggadah, which is, of course, Magid. Magid is the fulfillment of the mitzvah of Sipor, Yitziat, Mitzrayim. Right, and that's the long narrative. Again, um, we don't have time, obviously, to go over that, but I assume that you know you're co- you're covering it in other classes. And uh, if you have a good Haggadah, you know, once again, you'll be able to follow uh, what is going on. But what's interesting is at the end of Magid, we do something that's not part of Magid per se. We actually start reciting Hallel. And this is very unusual because the Hallel is split. Two chapters of the Hallel we say in Magid, and then we drink the second cup. And the rest of Hallel we're not going to say till after the meal. So it's a very interesting point that this is the only time that Hallel is split before the meal, before the second cup. And then after the second, after the third cup, really, uh, over the fourth cup, we're going to say the rest of Halal. Okay, so that's Magid. Then we have Rakhza. We wash our hands on bread with the regular bracha al natilas yadayim. And then we have Motzi. We make Hamotzi and Alachilas Matzah. So there are two blessings, right? Hamotzi, Alachilas Matzah. Men and women are equally obligated in all of these. Mitzvahs. Okay, then we have Maror. Then we have the Hillel sandwich, which is called Korech. And then we have Shulchan Orech. It's interesting, it's the same word as, not, not, not exactly the same word. Right? Shulchan Orech means set the table, eat. Now, when you hear the word Shulchan Orech, you obviously think of the word Shulchan Oruch. But it's the same thing. Shulchan Aruch is called Shulchan Aruch. It's a set table, meaning halachas. It gives you all the halachas. So a set table can mean set with food or set with halachas. In fact, uh, Rabbi Yosef Kaira wrote the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, who wrote the Ashkenazic customs, called it the mapa, the tablecloth on, 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 on the mapa. Okay. All right. So after Shulchan Aruch, we have Tzafun. Tzafun means the hidden one. That's the afikomen. Now remember, let me point out, why do you eat the afikomen? I understand matzah, moror, korech, because Hillel made a sandwich. The afikomen is actually a commemoration of the korban Pesach itself. In the time of the Beis HaMikdash, the korban Pesach was not the main meal. People would eat whatever meal they wanted. At the end of the meal, they would eat a little piece of the Korban Pesach. So the Afikonen is not a commemoration of matzah. The Afikonen, in fact, in the time of the temple, you might not have had an Afikonen. You would have eaten a piece of roasted lamb. The Afikonen is a commemoration of the Korban Pesach. And it's called Safun because it had, it had been hidden. The custom of Chloe's was to hide it, and have children find it, etc. Okay. So after 
Shalfon, we have Barech, Berkat Hamazon. We drink the third cup. Then we have Hallel, the rest of Hallel, which includes, and then we drink the fourth cup. That includes the Pesach songs. Now the last step, it's interesting, that uh, I, I think Chabad has admitted not to say this line, but the last step is called Nirza. God accepts our Seder, but it begins, that last Nirza is a concluding prayer that says, Chasal Sidur Pesach Kihil Chasal. The Seder of Pesach is concluded according to all its halachos. That's the beginning of the nirza that God will accept your service. I believe, it was the meaning of Chabad, I'm not sure if it is today, I don't know, that they don't say the line, chasal sidur pesach kehil chasal. And there's a very beautiful reason for that, because they say the seder is never really finished. The spiritual koach you get for the seder will sustain you the entire year. Therefore, they do not, they, they do have nirza, but they don't uh, say the phrase, chasal, cedar, pesach, kihil chaso. Most Haggadahs do, do have it. So, you know, so whatever your, your minog, your minog is. Okay? And that's it. And uh, again, um, there is technically a mitzvah even after the Seder to continue talking about the Exodus until you fall asleep. Most people are fairly tired at that, uh, at that particular juncture. And um, so it's interesting. So those, I don't know, I don't know if anyone here is going, going to the U.S. or, or leaving the country. Um, but, uh, well, okay, it's complicated. Meaning, uh, if you have decided to live in Eretz Israel, but you're visiting your family, for the second day of Yom Tif. So technically, there's all Shaila about how you keep a second Seder. There are going to be different customs about that. If anyone wants to ask me in more detail, maybe I'll, I'll give a separate answer because some would say uh, you do keep a full second Seder as long as you're in Chutz Laris. Others will say you can attend a Seder, but you cannot recite the brachos over the Seder. So there are going to be different opinions. Uh, but that's if uh, you intend, you've already decided to live here. Uh, if you're living there, then when you're there, you will keep a full two-day, two-day holiday, including the second, uh, the second day. Okay, so I want to wish you all a chag kosher v'sameach, a wonderful yantif. And uh, again, if there's any questions I can help you with by email, feel free to send me an email. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.